Let's pray. Our Father God, we respond to the beauty you have put all around us. And even though marred the beauty that you put within us, and we respond with praise, would you elevate your word above all other words as we read it? Would you give us the ears of disciples to hear it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying First Peter, if you're new with us. Uh, the series, uh, The True Grace of God, a phrase uh, that is in the last chapter of the book. This morning, First Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. From God's face, blessing. From God's face, face to our hearts and our lips. Hear God's word. Finally, all of you, Peter says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Blessing from God's face, his eyes, his ears, uh, to our hearts and out of our lips and hands and feet to bless. First of all, we seek God's face for He is the source of blessing. We don't earn blessing and we don't get blessed because of what we do, but when we know God's blessing, we become those who bless. That's just what happens. 
It's another way of saying if we know the love of God, we love. If we have the life of God in us, we're born of God's Spirit, then the life of God begins to show, though step by step, as we are transformed slowly sometimes, it seems, into the very image of Christ. We seek God's face for He is the source of blessing. Uh, Sometimes uh, I conclude, and I'm not the only one who does this, if you think I'm weird, there are others weird with me, Uh, it's best not to take a text in the order of the verses, which is one of the reasons verse by verse uh, uh, is not the perfect way, more paragraph by paragraph, and, and how do we get the emphasis Peter's putting into it. So we're going to the middle first, and then we'll go back to the beginning, and then we'll come to the end. Verses 10 through 12 that we just read. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. That's another way of saying the face of the Lord is towards his own. How do we know that? The last line in verse 12, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't want you to miss a connection here. Uh, What Peter's talking about in seeking good and seeking blessing ties very much to verse 7 that we studied last week. Remember where it says to husbands, and I can only very briefly remind you that we said that in Peter's setting in Asia Minor, uh, husbands, head of households, were head of households usually a lot bigger than our nuclear families. And I mentioned, think of Abraham and Lot, whose households got so big that they had to separate, separate geographically. And that the commandments to live with the women, literally with the feminine, with the women among you in the household, with understanding and honoring them, is so that your prayers may not be humbled. Well, what do we usually pray for? We pray for good. We pray for our good, our peace, our understanding. Peter's not changing gears here between verse 7 and the verses that we're studying this morning. Don't miss the connection. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Whoever desires, verse 10 in 1 Peter 3, to love life and see good days, same thing. Those are the prayers. We long to live a good life and to see good days. And we long, as was said earlier in the service uh, in the video, to to seek the welfare of the city. And by the way, uh, how important Thrive is as a way of our seeking to do good. One of the worst things that husbands, head of households can do is encourage the taking of the lives of babies within the womb of the women in their households. Because in order to run away from God, we think we can be God and kill babies, and we end up lowering ourselves. We hide from God by doing evil. It's nothing new. It's the way we've always been, apart from God's grace. But let him turn away from evil, Peter says, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We seek welfare of all. We do good. We're peacemakers. And Peter quotes, Psalm 34. Uh, If you've got facile fingers and a phone with a Bible, go to Psalm 34. Uh, If you've got a paper Bible with you, uh, go to Psalm 34. 
Uh, it really helps to understand where Peter's coming from in this whole chapter. We can't take more than a few moments on it, but I want you to see that as we've touched on before, uh, the Greco-Roman culture and the biblical culture is, like most cultures, in greater or lesser ways, a culture of honor or shame. And what we're talking about in 1 Peter 3 and in Psalm 34 is how do we have honor before God or how does God's face shame us? How does He look down on us legitimately for our evil? And this is the backdrop to much of Peter's thinking in this chapter. And indeed, the whole book, we've touched on this psalm before. Very quickly, I'll read through it. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Blessings from God that flow to my heart and out of my lips. Blessing His praise be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. How do you want to be honored before God? Be humble. Scripture says it over and over again. If you want honor from God, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. The song's coming to some of your minds, too. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He spoke words of comfort and deliverance. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Those who stare at God's face in Christ, reflect the radiance of Christ as they realize how forgiven and how blessed they are. If your countenance is down, look at the countenance of God in Christ. Until you see how much He loves you and your face might become radiant again, might have life from within by the Spirit of God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And now we come to the quotation that's in our chapter in Peter. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. A lot of times we hear a verse like that and we say, well, God hasn't done that yet. Yes, He hasn't. Why? It's why Peter quotes Psalm 34 but puts a new twist on it. Christ has come. And until the judgment that Stephen spoke of earlier in the service comes, we are to be towards those who do evil even, even when they do it to us, as Christ is to us who did evil and who were against God until His grace turned our hearts towards Him. We've got to wait, but Psalm 34 is telling us that the judgment will come. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, ultimately, I'll add the word, delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Some translations rendered will be ashamed. There will be no shame for those who find their righteousness in Christ. 
because Christ has taken all of our shame upon himself on the cross and given us acceptance and the beginning of nurture and transformation. Though we haven't come to 315 yet, we'll get there in just a couple of minutes, we've looked at the reality behind it in Psalm 34. God is truly God, and He takes care of those who bow before Him and acknowledge their need, delighting when, like His Son, they proclaim His willingness to show mercy. Even when people push back against God's goodness, we, like Christ, can still show mercy if we remember what we were like, living for ourselves, not seeking God for His own sake. If we sought Him at all, most of us sought Him for what He could do for us. And how many people I've seen walk away over the years after seeming so religious and so Christian when God didn't give them what they wanted because they were seeking Him for what He would give them, His hand, but not seeking His face. That's foundational. We will get everything in the end, but there may be sufferings along the way. If you're new to faith in Christ or uh, if you're still grappling with the hope that it might be true, uh, I'm really glad that you're here this morning. And if some of us uh, and the church have sometimes been in your way because we're not perfect, uh, I may say it again later, don't be surprised that we're not perfect because that's what our message is doesn't mean there aren't consequences from our failures, but it means that if people are looking for the church to be perfect, they don't understand the gospel, because the gospel says we can never be all that people want us to be. We're people floundering to learn to lean into Christ, and the beauty is that God is the only absolute power, and He's the only real powerful power that isn't selfish, and He isn't selfish to His creatures. Knowing our frailty, He longs to show mercy to us. He's long-suffering. He reaches out to us in our anger and our bitterness and frustration, but loves us so much that He begins to change us into the image of His beautiful and wonderful Son. It's God's face and honor we must fear and seek more than any other, and we will find Him good, a blessing. We seek God's face. He's the source of blessing. And then secondly, in verses 8 and 9, the first verses in the text, if you are resting in Christ as God's good news, what's the good news? Christ is God's good news. If you want to tell the story of the good news, tell the story of Christ Jesus. If we are resting in Christ's good news, then Jesus is making you and me good news as brothers and sisters to one another. That's where Peter starts, verses about what the church is to be like. Uh, look at those verses again, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. These qualities aren't something we strive to create and generate. They're part of the life of Christ, in the body of Christ. I've never yet been out in an orange orchard in Florida and heard an orange tree going, I gotta make me an orange. And an orange pops out on the limb. Have any of you ever seen that? I mean, orange trees have the life of oranges in them and they pop out oranges. Sometimes it gets a little tough if it's been a little too hot and not much rain. 
But ultimately, orange trees produce oranges. If we are really in Christ, this is what we produce for one another. And when we're not producing it, we've got to go back to Jesus and start over. These are ours only on the other side of the cross. Unity of mind, these are all qualities that aren't just character traits. They're the fruit of the cross. Unity of mind. Peter said in verse, chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. The unity of mind comes from focusing on the grace that's going to fully be ours when Christ comes back, and it's already ours because God has shown His grace in Christ and on His cross. Peter was pointing us to the unity of mind that only comes when we allow ourselves to be co-crucified with Christ. Why else would I have unity of mind with every one of you and you with me? I come up with some pretty stupid ideas, and I need help, and you do too. And as a church, and even as one local body, UPC, the unity of mind flows out of the other side of the cross and living in Christ. Sympathy, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Peter had failed to share and have sympathy with Jesus in his sufferings, in his trial. And boy, he learned the lesson about how much he needed to have sympathy in his life, in his heart, for his fellow disciples, instead of thinking he was better than them. If I know the sympathy God has shown for me in my weakness, how can I not show sympathy to you when you're struggling? If I love you in Christ and you're my brother and sister, and we're all in the same family with the same Father. Brotherly love, not just love. Uh, we Americans in our sentimentality, we get to a phrase like brotherly love, we go, oh, love! Or we go, love. But brotherly is the big word here. What kind of love? A love that comes to those you're brothers and sisters with. You got me. If you're in Christ, I'm your brother. You don't have to put up with me at UPC forever. And I don't have to put up with you forever. No, 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 no. But you do have to put up with me as a brother forever. And, and with sympathy and with forbearance and brotherly love and a tender heart, kind, compassionate, uh, I love this word in the Greek. It's eusplanknoi. Uh, Isn't that a good word? Splanknoi. Oh, it's such a spiritual word. It's bowels. And you is like a euphemism, a good way of saying things. It's, it's good bowels. For the Greeks, the heart of the affections was bodily and the way their language was formed. So, it's saying that from deep within, we all know what bad bowels are like. We don't want to be around anybody. Get away from me. But good affections from the essence of the soul, an important thing. A tender heart, kindness, compassionate, that is. A humble mind. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, the end of the chapter, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. 
But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Greek and Romans in Asia Minor, where Peter's audience was, they would look at that a humble mind, and that was a bad thing to say to somebody. You're low-minded, you're weak-minded. And Peter, like Jesus, turns it upside down. And he says, to be humble-minded is the only thing we can do before God. In order to show us that it's the most essential thing, God saved us through a cross. Something that nobody wanted to associate with or think about. Because the gospel takes us from the heights and, and, you know, we Christians are always trying to make what we can do this side of glory the heights. Glorious church, glorious music, glorious crowd. To the praise of God, those can all be wonderful things. Uh, you know, I pastored a church that grew from about 280 to 650 in two years. Worst thing that ever happened to me. But in the midst of that, there was another church in town uh, that answered its phone, exciting with its name. Uh, our, we were named Seminole, and I tried to get Grace, our secretary of 25 years, to answer the phone, scintillating Seminole, but uh, she didn't think that quite cut it quite as high. I, I bring that up because Mary Nell was at a luncheon with some people from our school that grew to about 900. Uh, in the eyes of some, we were a really big deal. Uh, they made me vice chair of the Billy Graham crusade because they needed a Presbyterian uh, and they thought we were in a dinky church. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why I got picked. But, but somebody from the exciting church was sitting across from Mary Nell at this school banquet and didn't know she was the pastor's wife of the church and the school and started talking about how wonderful their church of 2,000 or 3,000 was and uh, that they paid cash for when they built it. And some of the people around her were trying to keep from chuckling uh, as they realized how blinded she was to what could have been taken as an insult. But my wife is pretty wise. She realized no matter how big we are, if we're not humble-minded, we're not following Jesus. And Jesus isn't close to us just because our budget is big or just because everything is going well. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, what goes on when churches go through struggles is because God knows He's going to use it for good which is another way of saying maybe we needed it. Not that he's punishing us, but God can work everything, our struggles, our weaknesses, the interplays of personalities, uh, to bring us back to the center of the gospel. So pay attention, not to me, but to God. Don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We need to be this way first to the family of Christ, but then we are also this way towards those outside, third point and final point, honoring from our hearts Christ the Lord is holy. We speak with gentleness and respect when answering even those trying to shame God by shaming our good deeds. Why does the world put down things that sometimes in our own consciences we know are good? But increasingly in our day, we call evil good and good evil. Why? Because it's the same old story. We're hiding from God, and the best way from, to hide from God is to redefine Him. 
and to make a religion that keeps you away from really listening to Him. That's human nature. But Peter says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, that needs to be in more of our apologetics books. Because if this is a foundational verse for apologetics, the heart of the context is we show humility and grace and respect as those made in the image of God, even to those that are trying to harm the image of God and harm us. Sadness and confusion of many without a good shepherd in our days, grasping firmly to unsolid ground, but light doesn't come from darkness, and you know it's it's wonderful uh, that so many pagan philosophers, uh, from the Frankfurt School in Germany that had some of the best uh, materialist philosophers, uh, some of them, Jürgen uh, Habermas, admits that uh, the idea of universal human rights and equal rights only comes from Jesus. Some of the best. Uh, Atheistic or agnostic historians, as they study intellectual history and history, are, are writing in their books. won't make it in the newspapers, won't be on your evening news. But the scholars know that these ideas come from nowhere else. I have a friend who gives walking tours uh, in uh, the Latin Quarter where all the philosophers in Paris uh, were, and, and, and people are shocked when he tells them in French with the Texas, Oklahoma accent, the history of French intellectual history and quoting the pagan philosophers shows them uh, that the equality in liberty and equality and brotherhood and, and the French heritage comes only from Jesus. And they come away as he's quoting the pagan French philosophers who agree with that. One head, PhD in the uh, education ministry of France, said to him, why is it taking this American speaking bad French, although his French really is pretty good, just a little bit of an accent. Uh, he has a master's in philosophy in French from a French university. But, but why is it taking an outsider to teach me my own history that I, a PhD in history, never learned? Quoting the best of our French writers over the centuries. And they just kind of go away shaking their head, but wondering like, wow, this is wonderful. This is who we are. And as I said before, if you're struggling with the blunders and failures of human organizations and churches or of pastors and other mere mortals, uh, don't act so shocked and surprised when failures come along because putting on clerical garb or pretending you don't need it are no solution to our human need. Making a decision to trust Christ and to join Christ's church or even to lead a congregation as a pastor are just tiny steps on a pathway to taking up a cross that gets rid of our confused desires and really begins to live the life that God has called us to. That's how broken we are. Larry Alex Taunton, a brother who arranges debates between atheists and Christians, uh, including himself, has been learning to love his neighbors and make friends and show respect to some of those who could be seen as his enemies. And one of his friendships uh, was with the late Christopher Hitchens, some of you know that name, one of the five uh, new atheists, nothing really new about their atheism, but it sold books. 
Um, and Christopher Hitchens was brilliant and probably the sharpest, harshest tongue of any of those new atheists. And Larry had gotten them into a debate and they ended up traveling across the country in a car two times to events uh, together and became friends. And for a while, Hitchens hid his friendship a little bit because uh, his fellow atheists didn't like the fact that he was hanging out with some evangelical Christians. And we don't know if he ever came to the Lord. One of the dangers of making yourself a star amongst agnostics is it's hard to ever admit publicly without losing your following and some of your money while you're alive that you're rethinking things. In a book from 2016, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, which wasn't yet true Christian faith, the restless soul of the world's most notorious atheist. A few quick paragraphs and then we wind to a quick close. Who won the debate? Let's just say that what happened at the Babcock Theater stage was but a footnote to what happened at our hotel the night before the contest. It was then what we did, that we did a joint interview with a local television station. They were less interested in the issues being debated than in our friendship, Christopher Hitchens, Larry Alex Taunton. After a few throwaway questions, the interviewer asked Christopher what he thought of me, an evangelical Christian. I braced for the worst. It was here that he made a comment that I have previously mentioned in the book. If everyone in the United States, quote, had the same qualities of loyalty and care and concern for others that Larry Taunton had, we'd be living in a much better society than we do. I was moved, stunned, really. As we left the lobby, I told him that I really appreciated such a gracious response to the question. Hitchens, I meant it and had been looking for an opportunity to say it. He was dying of throat cancer. The elevator door opened and we stepped on. So there you go, he said. It's on the record now. No one can deny I said it or thought it. When CNN's Anderson Cooper asked Christopher Hitchens a very similar question to the one asked in Billings, but about Jerry Falwell instead of me, he said the moral majority leader was, quote, a petty little charlatan and a toad. And I think it's a pity that there's not a hell for him to go to. Wow. We've already noted how he likewise attacked Al Sharpton. Why was it for Sharpton's Christian convictions? No, it was because he thought Sharpton was a fraud an atheist posing as a Christian. Same can be said of his assaults on Mother Teresa and Jimmy Swigert. The point isn't that all of these people were frauds. Taunton's not saying that. It's rather that in each instance, Christopher believed them to be such, and he absolutely hated hypocrisy. In showing such deference for my faith and Francis Collins, who'd become his doctor, and his brother, Peter Hitchens, while Simon simultaneously attacking hucksters, Christopher was taking the side of orthodoxy against what he viewed to be counterfeit versions of it. Quote, who could conjure up an unlikelier apparition than the sight of Christian Hitch Christopher Hitchens heaving his cutlass as a defender of the faith he profaned? And yet that's what was happening in this divided mind of Hitchens as he was moving towards death and really respecting some Christians who treated him with respect and who treated him with honor. Taunton closes, sincerity does not trump truth. 
After all, one can be sincerely wrong, but sincerity is indispensable to any truth we wish others to, wish others to believe. There's something winsome, even irresistible, about a life lived with conviction. I'm reminded of the Scottish philosopher and skeptic David Hume, who was recognized among a crowd of those listening to the preaching of George Whitfield, the famed evangelist of the Great Awakening. I thought you didn't believe in the gospel, someone asked Hume. I do not, Hume replied. Then with a nod toward Whitfield, he added, but he does. My older brother in the Lord, Steve Brown, often quotes a friend of his from New England years. The friend said, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know, he didn't get there by himself. If you see David O'Dowd not reviling back, not returning evil for evil, treating with respect and gentleness folks who are hiding from God and hurting others as much as he used to do, you know, he didn't get there by himself. Jesus' steps led him to cry out from a cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We're called to walk with him towards those who desperately need the mercy we've found. In Acts, we see Stephen praying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them as they stoned him. Peter denied the Lord who loved him, later received a loving humbling from Jesus and learned to follow in Jesus' steps and feed his smelly sheep because Peter knew that he was one. And that's why we have communion. We have communion to remind us that we're dirty and we need to be clean. And that Jesus loves us in our dirtiness and came and died for us in our dirtiness. And he washes us with his own sprinkled blood. Just like the sprinkling of the elements in the temple set apart to God. If you're in Christ, you've been sprinkled with his blood. And you feed on his life. Let's pray as we move to the table. Father, you are good and beautiful beyond measure. We delight in you only because you've let us come to you without being afraid in, in Christ. And yet you love us enough to change us. Would you change us as we come to your table? We pray anew in Jesus' name. Amen.